Welcome to Catalytic Curiosity. I am your host, James with a Y O'Farron with Catalytic Conversations. I serve remote professionals and hybrid organizations with coaching, consulting, and training to help them reconcile humanity and technology, leading to healthier, digitally integrated lives and teams. On this podcast, I am embarking on a journey of discovery to unearth the roots of digital mastery and maturity beyond mere adulting. I interview insightful and intriguing experts, exploring how we can develop sage-like maturity with intention in today's digitized world. Today's episode brings Nigel Harst to the table to talk about educational communication, community, disinformation, and so much more. Nigel is an educator and researcher in the field of communication. His work chiefly focuses on information disorder and disinformation, as well as crisis communication. In addition to leading courses on disinformation, research methods, and digital studies, he recently worked as a computational disinformation analyst at a tech startup offering disinformation defense to government agencies and Fortune 100 companies. During our conversation, we talked about the power of community to combat disinformation and some of the challenges we are facing still in this time of transition into and out of this pandemic era and how we relate as humans in this digital world. I look forward to having you join us in this discussion. So buckle up and let's get started. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Nigel, on Catalytic Curiosity. We've met uh, briefly at um, Full Stack Fargo, <laughs> not Full Stack, but Startup Brew. Um, Startup Brew. Uh, uh, like, what, a few months ago now, I think. And it has been that long. We, we connected and it's like, you know, we have a lot in common. We need to make sure we connect. We haven't had lunch yet. We need to do that still. But nope. we're, ha- we're having a podcast, so that's second best. <laughs> we're doing it a little out of order. We're doing yeah. a little bit out of order. <laughs> but we hit off so well, I knew there was a ton of things that we wanted to converse about. And then we were talking ahead of time. There's a lot of subjects that you studied uh, that really fit in with what I'm doing and what my audience is interested in. So, Nigel, tell us a little bit about who you are and what your areas of expertise are and some of your history. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I'm Nigel Harstead. And... Sometimes if I'm uh, feeling a little coy, I like to say that I study shiny objects uh, just because I'm interested in a lot of different things. But Best kind um, of people are. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do have a PhD in uh, communication and I studied um, like disinformation and crisis communication. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've spent some time doing things like working at a tech startup, fighting disinformation and kind of infiltrating some of those groups and learning how they coordinate and then most recently, I've been teaching uh, research methods, public speaking, um, digital studies, and things like that, teaching throughout the pandemic and, uh, and onward. <laughs> lots so, of stuff. Lots of exciting stuff. Playing with communication and data and all kinds of cool things there. Yeah. So tell me a bit about, uh, let's dive right in here. Uh, when you were working and studying in, com- in communications and technology, and then the pandemic happened and we suddenly had all these lockdowns and we're suddenly working remotely, we're communicating remotely, we're connecting remotely, uh, and communities are having to adjust to that. Tell us about some of your experiences there, some of your challenges that you faced and some of the discoveries that you had coming out of that. Yeah, so um, I guess I count myself as kind of lucky because in communication, uh, I was one of the rare graduate programs that actually gave us a lot of training in teaching, Mm. uh, training to be a teacher. And uh, that, unfortunately, isn't true of a lot of disciplines. Mm. And there's an entire subfield we call instructional communication that studies 
to be a little bit cynical about it, how uh, upper middle class males in the college classroom learn. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's still useful, even though yes. there are some critiques that are valid. Fair. Uh, and so I was armed with that information going into this, you know, kind of sudden unexpected transition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yes, um, you know, learning how to do everything with Zoom, and I was teaching public speaking at the time, which added a whole other layer of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I knew that relationships were really important to teaching, mm-hmm. and we know that from a number of studies that a student's relationship with their teacher determines how much they think they've learned. Mm-hmm. And as someone who um, you know, gets paid to teach and is evaluated on teaching evaluations. Um, <laughs> that's important to me. Yes. Obviously, I want them to learn. I want yes. them to feel like they're learning and to be confident. Which I don't always correlate, but you want both of those things. <laughs> yeah, I want both of those things, right? Um, so I knew going into this that, okay, I can't just do voice over PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I have to be on the screen. I have to be relatable. I have to give mm-hmm. them some way to interact with me mm-hmm. and with one another and with the content. Um, so I felt pretty well equipped to, to do that, fortunately. Uh, I guess I count myself lucky there. But uh, we did end up, um, you know, starting out with Zoom and then kind of introducing tools along the way as we mm. encountered a need. Um, so to replace tests, for example, uh, sometimes we went more toward presentations. Other times we started to use uh, different tools that you can download to your cell phone to do like polling and things like that. Yeah, I've seen a few different ones that are used, even now are being used more frequently um, that you can like um, post words in there and it'll create a live word cloud of what everybody's sharing and their thoughts in the entire room. And I I just recently, I was at a a conference over in Pennsylvania um, and there was a presenter who used that to share things that were shared a lot of vulnerability like what are some of like the trauma that you have experienced people around you have dealt with and it's anonymous so people are able to share like a few key words um and seeing people like everybody in this room are all dealing with these same kinds of trauma things and you don't need like point particular people out but it's something you felt connected with the entire room because that emerged organically from everybody sharing vulnerably that way yeah And, you know, teaching classes like um, uh, research methods or uh, public speaking in very different ways, those are Mm -hmm. classes that make people feel like they're outside their comfort zone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of times. And so that was actually something that I would employ. And at first, I just kind of left it up there behind me or, you know, left it and said, hey, just type in the chat box whenever you want or post anonymously whenever you want. Mm -hmm. And I think that still was valuable. Mm -hmm. But one lesson that I learned, at least for me, was that it was almost better to have certain stopping points throughout Mm -hmm. a class where all at once people's comments would be visible. Mm -hmm. Because then everyone felt like they could contribute and they weren't self-censoring. Mm-hmm. Um, like they might otherwise. Yeah. And I, I think that's just, you know, a digital space, uh, working mm-hmm. or teaching online. Mm-hmm. That's one of the benefits that we have is that we can kind of um, alter that sort of bias towards self-censorship a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. And I, I like the the aspect of specifically creating 
points in time to emphasize this is what we're doing next mm-hmm. and what we're doing now. Because uh, that is one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is how using a universal device for all of our activities and interactions mm-hmm. in all places, it's always with us. And we're always getting notifications from all our activities on the same device. And we're using the same inter- even physical motion. So our somatic memory is locked. Yeah. That's blurred across all these different you know, engagement models, mm-hmm. um, which is really difficult to for our, our, our bodies, our minds, our souls to kind of separate out these different ideas. And so um, addictions as well as connections blur across all these boundaries. Yeah. And trying to rediscover a sense of rhythm to our lives because computers don't really have rhythms. Humans do. And yeah. being more human in that way of having more rhythms of here's a time for this. Now here's a time for this, as opposed to just always having it. Oh, it's available for you to do at any point. There's no point to do it then. Yeah. Right. I've heard... Specifying that. Yeah. It reminds me of some of the um, research out of psychology and, and sociology and other places. They call it the attention economy. Mm. It's actually a, a really good book called that. Um, mm. I would recommend uh, just the idea that attention is a finite resource. We only have right. so much of it. Right. And, right. you know, exactly what you were talking about, that we have to make sure that we are spending that resource in the places where it's going to be beneficial to right. us. Right. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and at any given time, you know, because we don't have like people have the myth of multitasking. Like we, no one ever actually multitasks. They're just constantly switching tasks. Yeah. And that context switching can be really destructive for our ability to focus on anything for a standard period of time. Yeah. And you know that um, at first when I was teaching, we tried doing kind of like live sessions mm-hmm. and I found that people were joining the class from very distracting locations. Ah, uh, yes. Sometimes because they didn't have another option. Mm-hmm. And uh you can track a lot about how students work on different learning management systems like canvas. Mm-hmm. Usually I don't look in there, but I was like, okay, I want to see in general, like how much time am I making them spend on this class? Mm-hmm. And for some of them, I could see they were going back and just rewatching everything later, which mm-hmm. is great if you need it, but made me start to wonder why aren't they catching it? You mm-hmm. know, the first couple times and some of it came down to, mm-hmm just that sort of distracting environment on their end. Yeah. So they can go. And that's one of the things uh, about with live interactions, which is really valuable being able to engage in a live uh, synchronous format where you can communicate and get feedback right away is really connecting. But at the same time, if you're not in a space, a physical space that aligns with that time in a way that creates that connection, um, it can actually be separating deep, um, it deconnects us or disconnects us from it. Um, yeah. uh, it's disadvantageous that way. But if you can then go find a space that is contagious or, or conducive to actually being able to connect with it and then rewatch it, that creates a more uh, retention that way. So it's like this weird decoupling. Uh, that's what I was looking for earlier, a decoupling of uh, time and space, which yeah. is really disorienting. Yeah. And, you know, it it makes me think now a lot of companies are debating whether or not to go back to um, working in the office versus remote versus hybrid. And some are questioning, well, do we have a good reason to go back to the office? And and many of them do, you know, it's relationships and Mm -hmm. brainstorming Mm -hmm. and different things. Um, But in some cases, the reason for going back to the office does not connect 
with the work that the company does. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, we have an investment in this building or or something else. (laughs) You know, that's exactly what I was finding um, with teaching. Now, one war story to share with you Mm. was at the university during the pandemic, I was at the university of Missouri and I voted with the class. Um, This was toward the tail end of um, kind of the lockdown and stuff when some classes were returning to Mm in-person and this was a group of seniors. So I said, Hey, we'll have a vote. Do you want to have this fully in-person fully online hybrid? What do you want to do? And they voted unanimously for online um, for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So we transitioned to that. Well, then the university came back and said, hey, we have a bunch of parents complaining, which is another issue, uh, (laughs) parents complaining that their students were not getting the quality of education, uh, that many classes that were listed as in-person were actually online, and that that wasn't fair. They were threatening to sue. So was it like they were anticipating it being in person and it was online. So then they assumed that was a lower quality or exactly. they actually, or they actually seeing a lower quality. Um, or they just perceive online as being inferior. They're perceiving it as inferior. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not privy to all of the details. I'm sure there mm-hmm. were some cases mm-hmm. where people used it to maybe work a little less, but mm-hmm. um, for the most part, everyone I knew was trying really hard to make this a quality experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, there was that perception that people, there was like a bait and switch, yeah, right? Yeah. So what actually happened because of that was much worse. <laughs> I had already promised my students that this would be an online course. They planned their lives so that uh, they could be at a different location. Yeah. And then I suddenly said, hey, uh, you either have to come back to class or we're going to try to run this online from the lecture hall because I was required to be in the physical room <laughs> I was assigned. So I couldn't use any of my fancy, you know, uh-huh. microphone and, and uh-huh. my own laptop. I was using the classroom computer in oh, this man. giant lecture hall with two <laughs> students in person and the other 20 <laughs> or so online. Oh man. And as hard as I tried, uh, <laughs> that, that was not ideal. <laughs> no, I, I have not heard uh, of, I mean, there's always been that kind of thing of lecture halls where you're sitting in front and like the camera's way far away or really super close. You're talking to people here and it's, it's bad or like, I can't imagine a standard lecture hall being able to deliver a quality online experience. Yeah. You have to design it specifically for a hybrid environment in order for that to work. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. And that's, that's, I guess the original point I was trying to make is that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, choosing a modality, choosing the tools, mm-hmm. uh, my experience, and then some of the research from communication shows like you need to be thinking about your goals mm-hmm. um, when you choose that and make sure that they match. Yeah. So what are some of the uh, less, uh, some specific tips or lessons that you've discovered along with, you know, teaching, pub, you know, public speaking in this transition, uh, working in classrooms, things that have shown ability to connect more effectively uh, being able to present more effectively and help improve the relationships in the online environments that you're working with. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we've mentioned the attention economy and everything else uh, so mm-hmm. far, but uh, that does play a role too in, say, public speaking or lectures. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a bit of a drive to be an edutainer, uh, so to speak, or, uh, you know, to be a comedian mm-hmm. as a teacher. 
and it really depends on your personality, but uh, breaking up, breaking up the sort of one to many uh, performance or the sage on a stage sort of format is Mm. really important, Mm. especially when, you know, your audience is in a room full of distractions or, or not somewhere where you can use body language like proxemics you know, how close you are to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't um, look them in the eye necessarily. Right. And so then we have to adapt public speaking, right? And say, okay, what do those techniques do? When I stand closer to this part of the room, what am I achieving? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm making people a little bit self-conscious, maybe making them more alert, mm-hmm. making them anticipate something. Mm-hmm. And okay, um, like I brainstormed with my class, how do we make that happen mm-hmm. over Zoom? Yeah, because you mentioned in, in our pre-show, we're talking about how when you were doing that, that public speaking course and you're looking at the book and like none of yeah. the education materials have been updated since what you, was the 1930s? Yeah, like 1930s. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, I, you know, like, yes, the books have been updated a little bit, sure. But yeah. for the most part, Not the sort of classical Western approach to public speaking really has not changed since then. And I just told my students, I said, hey, we're we're throwing out a lot of this book and we're going to rewrite it together mm. because this is kind of a new reality. Yeah. So what are some of the specific things that can I, I know you mentioned some things about like being able to see um, hands as yeah. part of that connection. What are, what are some yeah. things that you brought up in connection with that? Yeah. So like we were talking before um, and maybe I'm violating here. Uh, is how close you how close you sit to your webcam you know you want right. to be able to see your facial expressions yeah but at the same time um you know your hands can be distracting depending on where they're at mm-hmm. um, the importance of visuals and visual communication mm. uh, that was something that the class almost unanimously said was much more important now mm. uh, your ability to you know put together powerpoint is sort of the default but you know, to visually convey what you're talking about is mm-hmm. a much more important part of presenting mm-hmm. than maybe it would be in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that was what we decided. Yeah. So we spent more time talking about that. Like, how do we use color and space and how do we make these things accessible to people who maybe mm-hmm. have, um, you know, visual or auditory impairments or things like that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's really yeah. good. And not all of it's bad, right? Um, yeah. I mean, the, you know, we can do subtitles, we can do uh, mm-hmm. automatic captioning and things like yeah. that. Really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Or helping people that we, uh, you know, they didn't have that opportunity beforehand. Yeah, totally. Totally. I know some of the things that in Toastmasters as I've transitioned over and I, and then I went back and I've been attend- going to and joined a local Toastmasters club that's in person as well. And so rediscovering some of the skills of in-person after having been doing professional presenting online for the last couple of years, I've yep. noticed some interesting things. So for example, I, I initially noticed very easily how when you're working in Zoom, it's much more of a cinematic type acting type atmosphere versus theater. So if you're in person and you're on a stage, you use, you're, you're back here and you use large gestures yep. right, to illustrate your point, you know, yeah. but your micro face expressions are not as clear. Whereas if you're here, it's more like in a movie versus a theater where you have a lot of close-up shots and you have a lot more intuitive yeah. expressions. A lot you have to be much more careful about your the, the micro expressions. Um, yeah. 
And so being able to work with that and kind of move back and forth to exchange that modality, but then translating it back in person again, I discovered that I had for, forgotten the practice of projecting to the back of the room. Yep. Because I can, I can, I can whisper, I can lean back and speak loud, you mm-hmm. know, and modify with my microphone, right? Yep. But I'm not projecting to the back of a room. <laughs> yeah. Or or even, you know, um, first time public speakers, students especially, um, if they're nervous, they tend to kind of hide behind the podium or, you know, right, the right. computer screen. And, and you we're stuck in a box even, now. <laughs> yeah. And that's even more the norm. So yeah. a lot of students, you know, at first don't even realize they're doing it because they're not used to making eye contact. Moving around. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So yeah, it, if there's a silver lining to all of this, it's that it has made us think more intentionally about mm-hmm. why we recommend the things we do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. about motion and, and mm-hmm. where you stand and facial expressions. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned and you've looked at, you talk about how you are working with disinformation and um, breaking down extremist groups, online, mm-hmm. social media, things like that. And you mentioned a study about Twitter and community. Let's talk a bit about that and some of the community dynamics that happen online. I'd love to learn more about that from you. Yeah. So this is actually an older study. I believe it's from 2012, which in internet years is ancient now. Yep. But uh, I, I think it was an interesting snapshot in time mm. and sort of revolutionary at the time. And what they were doing at Twitter was... a uh, you know, in its prime, I guess you could say, uh, at the time. And it was one of the first opportunities we had to study networked conversations, mm-hmm. meaning to kind of map the directions and the associations and relationships we had. A lot of data. Uh, yeah, while we were talking. And, uh, you know, that that's hard to do. So what that study found is that depending on the type of conversation we're having, uh, and they found there was like nine different categories. Yeah. Uh, we form very different types of networks hmm. and we interact with people in very different ways. So for example, if it's a sort of political or an ideological conversation, mm-hmm. uh, there tend to be two separate networks that talk a lot within one another, but those networks very rarely cross. Very polarized. Yep. And that's where we get the idea of, or one of the places where we get the idea of the echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then if it's uh, branding conversations, you can see that it almost looks like a tree coming from the top down and hmm. forking into, you know, kind of the consumers. Um, there's kind of a, a two-stage flow model, which was separate from this, but it's the idea that um, there are sort of influencers or gatekeepers oh, right. information, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and then they distribute that information they filter it and distribute it to mm-hmm. followers. Kind of a curator um, type of a role. Yeah. And then the really interesting one to me was academic or professional conferences mm. where there would be different groups that would talk across to each other a lot. And, and it wasn't necessarily just back and forth. It would tend to be like the group um, associated with the particular topic would speak a lot to this group. And then this group would talk with their network over here. Mm. So suddenly we have three stages and then that network sometimes would connect back to the original speaker 
other things. So is that more like cross-disciplinary comparison type stuff happening? Uh, perhaps. Um, it, 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 that would be one example, yeah, where, okay. you know, um, information is coming to a new group that right. hadn't necessarily been talking about it, and then that group shares it with maybe another Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. this right. all is perhaps much more compelling when you actually see the you can the visualize it yeah yeah um, but if you if you if there if there's a public link to the study i can include it in the show notes i'm not gonna get that. yes uh, awesome. let's absolutely do that because yeah. um that is available as a pdf online oh, fantastic um so the relevance to today because yeah. not all conversations happen on twitter thankfully uh, <laughs> yeah, <thankfully. laughs> but it's, it's that you know we have different needs uh network wise communication wise depending on our goals and depending on the types of conversations we're having mm -hmm. and the information we're seeking out or, or this that or the other thing mm -hmm. and i think one of the relevant ideas that we can take away from that you know thinking about working on zoom or working online or asynchronously or distributed, whatever, mm -hmm. is that the platforms we use are really constraining the way in which we organize our communication. Right. Which is when we, when, we, when, we, when we structure our communication along these lines, that shapes the connections and the communities that arise within that communi those communications. Because communications are one of the ways that we embody community, right? those, are those conversations. Yeah, ex exactly. So and those communities shape our identity. Mm -hmm. So this is really vital to being able to um, be intentional about how we engage with these things. To be able to understand yeah. the structures. You know, and one of the critiques of online teaching, at least early on, was that the learning management system was sort of the big behemoth at the center of everything. Mm -hmm. And that uh, originally, they really were not set up to have two-way communication or right. to allow for collaboration. It was more right. of a repository of information yep. and a, a place to submit your assignments. Very, in um, very individualized. Um, each person on their own interacts with it, and there's no cross-connection, which is fundamentally critical for a healthy community. Yeah, and you know, for a lot of the, a lot of the colleagues that I observed or have access to, when we all moved online, we sort of splintered into a number of different programs because we had different needs, mm. right? Polling apps to get uh, anonymous or, uh, you know, feedback of some sort, communication mm. going back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, we still used the learning management system because we had records we needed to maintain and mm -hmm. things like that. We're on Zoom because that was the tool at the time. It's what everyone had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then uh, maybe we're sending students out to other sites on the internet instead of uh, giving them a book. Maybe we're pulling things down from different websites and say, go here for your information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it it really kind of, I don't want to say splintered, but it, it really um, kind of spread out the space in mm -hmm. which education happened. Yeah, yeah. So A lot more, you have a lot more tools at our disposal in order to hyper-focus and optimize for particular modalities of communication and connection. Yeah. Things. Have you seen any um, ways to try and kind of bring those together in any way that, you know, 
creates more cross connection between those things. Like if you're having students who are pulling here and then conversing here over on Discord or wherever, mm-hmm. there's like all these different apps, all these different platforms. There's yeah. like there's a general like this as a like I think is it called platform fatigue? Uh, yeah, too right. many things <laughs> just going on. Um, and it's like, I, I, I talk with people and I'll say, Hey, we want to use this one particular thing. And they go, Oh, is that another app? I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. It is a new app, you know, like, Oh, another one. I'm like, I'm sorry, yeah, and, <laughs> but it's you know, really good. <laughs> and at, at one point I was using Slack and then discord mm-hmm. uh, for stuff because that's how I operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually I switched back to, you know, zoom and a learning management system and email because, mm that's what they were using and everything else. And I said, huh. well, we can make this work. We just have to be mm-hmm. intentional about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, because there, there definitely was for all of us, some platform to fatigue and there still is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, these things have not gone away even with the return of in-person classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think is interesting. That That is very true. I mean, there's a certain element of uh, permanence of certain aspects. There's not going to, we can't re- roll back things. Um, that was one of the things we were initially looking at people who, like myself, who worked remotely before the pandemic and, and there's all these resistance to people like, oh, that's a ridiculous model for work. It's never going to happen. And, but mm-hmm. then some of this like shoved the early adopt the, yeah, the bell curve, of early adopters and late adopters middle, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just shoved that whole bell curve all the way over, uh, that everybody had to adopt online yep. and you can't really push that back again. You can't really roll progress back that, you know. The camel's nose is under the edge of the tent and it's inside now. There's no getting him back out the tent. <laughs> I remember that one, but it, true story. Yeah. <laughs> Not my own personal story. Uh, my uncle is in the Marine Corps and he talked about like you get the camel's nose gets under the edge of the tent and there's no keeping him out after that point. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to roll back. But I, I think, you know, that that speaks to the the gains that we've made and maybe the progress that we've made for the first time since the 1930s in the case of yeah. public speaking right um, you know that healthy disruption in that case yeah and you know our reality is changing and if this isn't how people communicate anymore by you know speaking to a large captive audience um mm. maybe it is time to change how we do that yeah absolutely absolutely um so one other piece in connection with this and these discoveries around community and connection um, what are some of the, cause you talked about working with trying to dismantle some of the, the disinformation and the extremist groups and that kind of yeah. stuff. What are some of the, were there any like preconditions or prefactors that lead to that kind of a, uh, identity that can be forestalled? Like what, what are some things that we can yeah. either implement ourselves to avoid falling into those kinds of traps? Yeah. Or things that you can do when you're creating a community that can kind of prevent falling into that trap as a en mass. Yeah, you know, and you, you mentioned the word community, and that's mm-hmm. obviously in, important when it comes to like extremism and yeah. disinformation, and um, because a lot of this is born out of a sense of desperation. Mm. Um, we use something called radical empathy when I worked at the startup doing disinformation defense. Mm-hmm where we thought of people as victims of disinformation rather than perpetrators. Uh, Because that is what the research says is happening. And when you get into these places, it it really is um, disheartening to see just how... It's it's a a mimetic addiction. 
basically yeah. is really what it comes down to. And, and and in some ways you could describe it as people who are desperately seeking some sense of control over their lives mm-hmm. when otherwise maybe there isn't any. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in a lot of cases, the reason that we find groups using online spaces like social media or um, message boards or, or things like that mm-hmm. is because that's where they find community. Yeah. Right. And um, so that's a hard question. It's a hard thing to interdict mm-hmm. because we need to try to make our own communities accessible yeah. and maybe reach into some of those places mm-hmm. and, you know, welcome people in, make it easy for them to join. Hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure we necessarily have the answers for how to do that all the yeah. time. Just yeah. like we don't necessarily have the answers to do that, you know, in our own physical communities all the time. True. True. But I, I think that those barriers to community are really, if I had to narrow it down to one thing, that would be the reason the hmm. disinformation spreads so much. That and Good just insight. the that, and I would say the lack of um, the lack of feedback that we sometimes receive. If I, you know, mm. say, mm. "Oh, everyone in Washington D.C. are snake people wearing human suits," and I put that on the internet, uh-huh. and I truly believe it, you know, maybe some people give me angry reacts or laugh or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone argues with me in my comment section, mm. but that's not the same as someone I respect. Mm-hmm. having a face-to-face conversation like, really <laughs> right? right because yes. i yeah. live in that world and we call it um we well, can call it manufactured consensus um mm-hmm. which is where people surround you with an environment that says this is the one truth mm-hmm. right and you don't see the other is that like a, a manufactured echo chamber kind of idea yeah exactly mm-hmm. um and actually russians and any state sponsor of disinformation mm-hmm. uses that's that how it works. Yeah. 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 Or are the um, entire country of North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And that's the whole reason we have sock puppet accounts, um, fake accounts that are pretending mm-hmm. to be someone mm-hmm. other than who they are mm-hmm. um, because we can manufacture that sense of consensus. And when yeah. people are going solely online for their sense of community, right. Well, that's an opportunity for all of these sock puppets um, mm-hmm. to, you don't influence them and say, Hey, mm-hmm. um, believe this piece of disinformation and, you know, feel yeah. passionate about that. That's one of the things you mentioned that <clears throat> when you're having communities solely online, it's very vulnerable, very brittle um, to those kinds of attack vectors. One of the uh, things that I talk about um, is the importance of technology being an extension of our humanity. Mm-hmm right, of being able to um, connect with people in person and then bring that connection online. Uh, and so it extends that. Or that it, when you're meeting with people who are 100% online um, that you connect with. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, so and then being able to say, all right, uh, I may not know this person in person, but I'm engaging with them with my full human identity. Yeah. Right. That I have built in person. Yeah. And those online communities can be amazing. I mean, yeah, I I, I built some of them. They're beautiful. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my hobbies is uh, film photography 
uh, love it. Kind of an interesting. I'm kind of an early adopter technology wise, and maybe that's why I use film. Um, but you know, there are some really genuine, awesome experiences and, and sense of community there. Um, it's just that it's also, you know, vulnerable to taking a bad turn. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to one of the things that connects with that is the dimensionality of things. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are only communicating via text, for example, yeah. uh, that's a very fine thread that can be very easily broken. Um, and if you're only talking on one particular topic, you know, like the chat group in a chess club um, mm-hmm. is a very narrow a- a- avenue through which to connect with people authentically. Um, yeah. But if you're also talking along other modalities of talking you know, via, via voice, um, you're gaming together. Uh, you're doing other activities. So you're also not just doing chess, you're also reading books together. You're talking about religion together or whatever. You have mm. these multiple dimensions to share more uh, perspectives on who you are. And you get a fuller picture of who a person is. Uh, it creates yeah. more engagement. Yeah, and that's a, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. It, it's both really exciting and good and, and yeah. you know, potentially could, could be harmful. Um, someone who grew up in a town of 300 people Right. Um, I know I loved when the internet came around because suddenly I <laughs> connect with people who shared interests, you know, shared interests were yeah. a little bit more like me, I guess, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in a sense, but I still had that sort of, the, I guess, rock of a community there that yeah. I was forced to interact with, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, so it was a little bit of both, but um, mm-hmm. so I, I, it, I think it's a, a synergy that I think is healthy if we approach it right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love it. Uh, do you have any other thoughts uh, from the conversation we've had so far? Any any stray loose ends that you'd like to bring up uh, and touch on as we're wrapping up? Oh, just, um, you know, thinking about disinformation and mm-hmm. how that impacts or says something about community. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that what it means to be a community is sort of evolving and whether that's talking about mm. um you know your standard community or maybe a workplace community or a social group mm-hmm. um you know our our connection to that um is maybe evolving in terms of like physical relationship amount of time how we portray that like a lot of us now will brand ourselves online with profile picture overlays or mm-hmm. <laughs> you know flags or whatever and regardless of whether or not that's a good thing it's okay. it's sort of changing how we communicate and how we enact mm. community mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that push disinformation precision targeting um you know captive audiences that are um really hyper focused on small niche things mm-hmm. and now um zero cost publishing right i can publish in it yeah hardly cost me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, those things have really overturned, I think, society in general, and, and um, they've made what we might term information disorder, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, uh, mm-hmm. made that a lot easier to disseminate. Yeah, yeah. And even when it comes to building community, it's that same double-edged sword that I think those things are contributing to. It's easier to find our people, it's easier to and cheaper to communicate with them. Yeah. And suddenly there's different ways that we perform yeah. inclusion and belonging. Yeah. Um, so it's it's 
interesting time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be thinking about these things because yeah. um, it's it's a big upheaval, and I think we're figuring out where we'll land. Because I, I really want to devil and underline that particular point about the way in which digital community amplifies certain things. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the entire scope of the number of people who are on the internet, billions mm-hmm. of people, there are tons of other people who are just as crazy as you are. <laughs> nope. And then you can find those people and then validate your craziness with those people. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, and that's where we find our validation and our identity gets reinforced. Mm-hmm. If you're you know by yourself in a, in a group of 300, you know, mm-hmm. no one's going to reinforce your crazy off the wall ideas necessarily, right? Not necessarily. Sometimes it happens, <laughs> yep. but it can happen. Cults happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's a lot easier online. You can go find people who are almost clones of you ideologically mm-hmm. um, and then support each other off into La La Land, uh, which uh, is really tragic. You know, and, and for me, that is the big question that I'd like to tackle. And I know other people would like to tackle is how do we bring those people back into the fold or, or, you know, how do we make our group, our society um, Mm -hmm. more permeable and more easily entered approach to joined. So they don't end up feeling that they're pushed out into the fringes where they end up in these toxic areas. Exactly. Exactly. That's powerful. Well, thank you so much, Nigel, for joining me in this conversation. It's been amazing. As yeah, always, I, I look forward to having lunch with you finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll make sure to get that on the books after this. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had your curiosity sparked to explore these subjects with greater awareness or gained a valuable insight along the way. Take a look at the show notes for links to the book, to the studies, to where you can find Nigel, and so much more. Leave reviews wherever you can, and make sure to join the conversation on my Discord. Remember, community is the catalyst that drives lasting transformation. I'll see you in the next episode of Catalytic Curiosity.